Welcome to Inclusion Catalyst with your hosts, Mickey Desai and Susan Cooper. We invite diversity leaders to the table to deconstruct complex social justice issues and showcase the best inclusion practices in our workplaces and our communities. Hello, this is Mickey Desai, your host for this episode of the Inclusion Catalyst. Today, we're in the Porter Novelli offices in Buckhead in Atlanta. And across the table from me, I've got my co-host... This is Susan Cooper. Susan, uh, I've been looking forward to this interview for a while. Could you introduce our guest? I would love to. Today we have with us Lauren Kanzik. She is a PR professional, a mom, a wife, a future baller, as her Twitter account will tell you. And uh, she's also an advocate and member of the disability community. Welcome to the podcast, Lauren. Thanks. Thank you for having me. We're glad you're here. Um, so what, one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is you brought up to me, you introduced me to this uh, organization called the Valuable 500. And um, my understanding is it's an organization that is calling out the quote-unquote diverse-ish nature of uh, many companies' diversity and inclusion policies that often don't include disability in the conversation. They they claim to be diverse, but they they make no plans, no um no conversation there's no conversations around disability so what types of companies are involved in the valuable 500 and and what are they doing so um the valuable 500 has really just opened it up to um any business that wants to sign on to be a part of the valuable 500 and the goal is um after this was launched earlier this year to get 500 uh, businesses signed on by the end of the year um, who would commit to putting um, disability on their corporate board agendas. Um, and they only have about um, a little more than a 100 left to get committed um, before the end of the year is my understanding. And there are large companies that are household names. Uh, most recently, I've seen Jaguar Land Rover signed on. Um, Accenture is one of the big the big signees to the Valuable 500, Porter Novelli and Omnicom, um, who's Porter Novelli's uh, parent company, has signed on. And it's really just a community of leading businesses who have signed on to say that they pledge to to make this a part of the discussion. And all that the Valuable 500 asks in return or the action that they ask the businesses to take is just to make one firm commitment to action in 2019. And it's sort of up to the companies to determine what that looks like in their own organization. They do have some guidelines um, or some categories where they feel like, you know, companies might want to consider doing something within the organization, um, but it's really up to the organizations themselves um, and then just share what they're doing internally and externally. So it's pretty pretty simple and I feel like gives companies a lot of freedom to decide how that best fits into their own culture and how they want to go about it. So like if you were in charge, what, what do you think uh, are some of the most important things that companies should be considering? Well, one of the first things um, that comes to mind and is almost um, just one of the basics when it comes to accessibility and including um, people with disabilities in the conversation is just making sure that the workspace itself, um, including the office, is uh, accessible, especially for people with mobility impairments, mobility disabilities, 
and even going beyond mobility, just making sure that the employee has access to the building, has access to their space, and can effectively use their technology just the way any other employee would um, operate in a typical day. Um, so that's just, that's one of the basic things. Um, and for me, someone who uses a wheelchair, that looks like, you know, putting push buttons on doors um, so you don't struggle holding your Starbucks in one hand and <laughs> trying to open the door. Same with conference rooms. I mean, doors in general are a barrier mm -hmm. um, for a lot of people um, with mobility impairments. So that's just one of the basic things that companies can do. I once had an employer who went a little bit further than that and actually um, made some modifications to their like common area in the kitchen because... I couldn't pull up to the kitchen to or to the sink, I'm sorry, to to wash my hands or to do anything really with the water because it was the cabinets were in the way, so they actually gutted the cabinet underneath um and made it so that it was a roll under sink for me. Um they brought in an occupational therapist who sort of went place by place in the office and said, Here's some suggestions that, you know, you could do to make things a little bit easier for Lauren. You know, they took some of those suggestions. That cabinet thing was one of them. So there are definitely employers who are willing to do that. It's just a matter of um, making them aware, you know, in some situations that that's something that, that is helpful. Do you think people kind of are forced to often advocate for themselves when they maybe they start at a new company? Do you think people who might have mobility issues or, or any other disability where they there's some simple accommodations that, that they could do. Like, do people have to ask for it? Or do you think many companies are asking them, how can we help you? Um, in most cases, the employee would have to be their own advocate and yeah. ask for it. I think that's for two reasons. One, the employer doesn't want to overstep. Um, and put themselves, I think, in a position of assuming that someone needs an accommodation that they may not. Mm -hmm. um, and so there's a little bit of sensitivity there. Another reason that I think employees have to advocate for themselves is that the employers also aren't mind readers about, say, they do need a modification or think they need a modification. You know, how to go about that? What does that look like? Um, what is going to be the most helpful Unfortunately, I think that a lot of employees, even, I mean, including myself 100% in this, have trouble speaking up for themselves because there's already a mindset we've imposed on ourselves that we are somehow a burden or causing uh, inconvenience already. And so to uh, bring that up would be you know, would make us feel a little bit like we might be feeding into that by inconveniencing someone else or giving, you know, the employer a reason to regret hiring you, you know, mm -hmm. anything like that. Because sometimes the things that we are asking companies to do is going to cost money. And so that's coming out of their own pocket. And we don't want to feel like that we're going to be seen in a different way or like more um, of a burden on the employer than your average person who doesn't need any kind of accommodation. Yeah, I feel like there's kind of maybe a 
some barriers to communications on both sides. From my perspective, I've you've mentioned companies not wanting to make assumptions about accommodations, and I've wondered that myself when when I see people that that have different needs. I'm not sure if I should offer help or see if they ask for it. What What's your perspective on that? Obviously, you're not the number one spokesperson for all people of, with all different dis- disabilities. So I'm not asking you to, to speak on behalf of everyone. But in your experience, would you prefer to try something yourself? Or would you prefer people to just offer help when you clearly need it? I would say that I most often, if someone just asks if I need some assistance of some kind, I'll either happily say yes or no. I don't have a problem receiving help if I need it. The issue or the problem comes whether you believe this or not, you may not believe it, but people will just jump in and do things for you without even asking. Mm-hmm. Sometimes sometimes it's okay because it's something small like picking up something up off the floor, which is totally fine and harmless, but There are other times when it's literally been someone coming up behind me because they see me going up a little bit of an incline and just pushing me Mm -hmm. without, without asking. Yeah. So they're, uh, you know, in their mind, they're doing something nice and, and being helpful. Um, but especially for people like myself who are, who's, who are wheelchairs, uh, the wheelchair becomes a, like another limb. Right. And it becomes the equivalent of you just walking up to someone, grabbing them by the arm and dragging them somewhere. Yeah. Um, Invasive. I can imagine that feeling very. So it's, I would definitely say, you know, asking is, is totally appropriate. Assuming that you know better how to do something than the person themselves who clearly could ask for help if they wanted it and and taking it upon yourself to, to force them to do something um, is is where it becomes a problem. Mm-hmm. So along along the lines of opening up the lines of communications, today here at the Porter Novelli office, there was a fire drill. And I've wondered before, like, what does Lauren do in the case of a fire drill? But at the time, I didn't know you very well, and I, I didn't ask. So what should people do in those situations where they want to ask a question but they don't want to be rude to somebody that maybe they don't know very well, or even somebody they don't know at all. You don't want to just walk up to somebody in a grocery store and start hammering them with questions. Oh, it happens. I'm sure it does. <laughs> so what's what's your thought on that? On one hand, you know, you want to be educational and help people understand, and you want to facilitate that understanding, um, especially because a lot of people don't often get exposure to people with disabilities or if they do it might be someone with a disability who maybe isn't out in the community you know um, it may be just a you know an older person in their family that they you know that has um, has a disability but they don't see younger especially women because men statistically are are impacted by my type of injury um, significantly more, um, which is spinal cord injury, than women are. So, you know, you want to be that example and that that educational function in someone's life if they aren't exposed to that so that they can sort of open their eyes to new things. Um, but on the other hand, you know, sometimes you're just at the grocery store with your family and you don't want to think about that today. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I see it from both sides and I, I do struggle with that a bit. Um, I think it depends on 
the environment, you know, it's almost like approaching a celebrity, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when they're like at dinner with their family kind of thing. Right. Where they're just trying to have dinner with their family. They don't want to, you know, take a selfie with you, you know, Mm -hmm. or whatever. That's kind of what it feels like sometimes because there is this, people get this, this courage to come up to you, somebody they don't even know, and sort of ask about your life and why you're in a wheelchair and sometimes you just want your private time to be your private time Mm -hmm. so i think it depends on the environment if it was in a professional environment i can definitely see where it would be taken a little bit differently i personally would receive it a little bit differently especially if i have even uttered a single word to a person is different than if it is honestly just a stranger you know in a grocery store Mm-hmm. So I, I approach it kind of depending on the environment um, is how I is how I receive I receive it differently mm-hmm. in different environments. I think it, it reminds me of I, I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but you mentioned one time in a, in a discussion we were having at a, as a group um, that someone at, at the grocery store, I think, told you, oh, you're too pretty to be in a wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And the things that people say are just cuckoo. They are. Yeah. <laughs> There, there've been, there's been a lot of that, you know, I have, I've had people who, you know, maybe one time they like sprained their ankle and were in a wheelchair for like two months. And so they tell me that they understand what it's like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, okay, that's Mm -hmm. a little bit different. Not Mm -hmm. the same. And yeah, people, I mean, I, I did, I had somebody say, oh, but you're too pretty to be in a wheelchair. And I didn't exactly know how to respond because it's sort of a compliment, but also, a confusing compliment Mm -hmm. so you know i I try to be as nice as possible in situations like that but i often just want to say what possesses you to say something like that to someone you know i get goofy looks when i uh push i actually push my own shopping cart like at target Mm -hmm. and people look at me weird and it's just the things that people say and do and and the way they act um in public is is interesting and you know you don't think about it until you're on the receiving end of it um kind of objectifying yeah oh for sure mm-hmm. yeah and especially because you know i do get out in the community and i'm you know active uh with my family and with my friends you know people will say oh i'm so glad to see you out and about enjoying mm-hmm. life like, mm-hmm. if, they, if they don't know me then mm-hmm. these people say that and I'm like, well, what? <laughs> what should I be doing? <laughs> what, uh, okay. Like, I'm just doing normal. These are totally normal things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah. And I think it just goes back to really a lack of understanding that that there are ways that people can still be out and active and enjoy life and not um, be holed up in a hospital bed all day. And I really think that especially that goes for um, some people in the older generations just because they aren't used to some of the like rehab technology and the rehab techniques that are being used these days to um, rehabilitate people who have had traumatic experiences, whether brain injury, you know, stroke, spinal cord injury, what have you. It wasn't until after... World War II, that they started actually investing and finding ways to rehabilitate people with spinal cord injuries. Before that, you were just left to 
waste away, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you were considered an invalid and not a important person in society uh, because you couldn't contribute anything. So they just let you go on your way. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it just goes back to, you know, it's still a pretty new, it's still a pretty new phenomenon to have people who are out and about and able to live life normally after, you know, a traumatic injury. Um, and in the U.S., it's actually a lot better than some places. So, you know, I think that informs a lot of a lot of people's experiences and how they approach how they approach the whole disability conversation. Mm-hmm. So speaking of public spaces and also companies that either have a large building or are housed in a, in a large building, what accessibility issues should those organizations be aware of for people who do use wheelchairs or any other device that helps them with their mobility for um, emergency situations especially? So there are some... There's some assistive equipment for specifically for emergency situations and people with disabilities. Um, my uh, last employer actually purchased a, um, it was like a chair that easily could navigate stairs. Um, and it was specifically was for people who could not go downstairs to put them in the chair and uh, have some sort of support personnel around, you know, help get them down without necessarily forcing anybody to carry that person down, but could get them out easily. Mm -hmm. So I know that there's some adaptive equipment out there, but I'm sure, again, it goes back to a money thing. You know, Mm -hmm. not everybody can can invest in something like that, but it's definitely something to look into. There are a lot of different resources and solutions. Uh, I know specifically if anybody in Atlanta were to, reach out to our um, sort of the local main rehabilitative hospital here, I'm sure that they would have resources that would be able to at least point somebody in the right direction of finding solutions for emergency situations. I'm sure that they would have the resources and offer solutions. Um, Some other things to consider would be, you know, obviously the person's workspace. Um, Is their desk the right height for the wheelchair that they're in, um, you know, that'll vary if someone's in a power chair versus a manual chair. Is their monitor at the right height um, for them to, you know, not have to lean or uh, move around a certain way just to be able to see their screen? Bathrooms are a big um a big pain point for a lot of people with disabilities. And most modern buildings, you know, you have the handicap stall, but that's not always the case and restrooms are definitely a, a big um, pain point for people with mobility issues. Um, you know, if you're not in a post ADA world building, mm-hmm. um, which some are not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that would probably be the number one thing that would absolutely have to be accessible. You know, you can almost, um, you can almost adapt some other things to make it work, but if the bathroom is inaccessible, you might as well not work there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you find yourself like pre-screening, um, like if some friends suggest a lunch place, do you find yourself having to pre-screen the places that you go? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Especially just in Atlanta. I mean, there are some more like historic, 
you know, areas of town. Like, so I live like close to Marietta Square, which is very old, very historic. There are some some places on the square that I cannot get to. Unfortunately, this, a lot of them get a pass because they are on, like, if you're on a historic registry or, or something similar, you sort of don't have to make those modifications if it would compromise the integrity of your building. So there's definitely, I definitely still encounter that. And I do, I do have to pre-screen it. A lot of times it has to do with um, high tops as well, like in restaurants or at bars, not being able to, you know, be up that high is, is something that I've, that I've encountered. So I, I do have to, unless I know the place, I pretty much either have to look it up online or call. And if I make a reservation, always say, you know, there's a wheelchair in the party. So sometimes it makes for a little bit longer of a wait mm-hmm. uh, for for something like that. But yeah, I definitely have to sort of think three steps ahead mm-hmm. anytime I do pretty much anything. Mm-hmm. I'm about to ask a really stupid question, I think. Okay. In, in, some way, in that what was about to come out of my mouth was, how hard was it? And I'm like, that's just dumb. <laughs> and but But it must have been... It must have required a lot of diligence and fortitude to path yourself away from tragedy into flourishing, right? I mean, and and so you had several new learning curves in front of you. Mm -hmm. How did you navigate all that and and still manage to come out on the other side as a champion and an advocate and a rock star? Thank you. Well, it definitely, um, so it's been eight years since my injury and it's sort of an ever evolving process and something that I am still learning to do. It really, I was really kind of actually propelled, so to speak, pretty quickly after, after my injury because I actually don't know why me kind of why I was someone that people gravitated towards but I as an advocate for the for the community but I kind of was and was just kind of thrust into it so to speak so you didn't necessarily choose to be an advocate for the community well it it was a it was a naturally unfolding process Mm -hmm. um I was still really in the early stages of recovery when um, I was I, w- I was approached to be on like the cover of a the magazine for the rehab hospital, mm. um, and so they did like a you know a really in depth story on me with that, and it sort of uh, you know got some buzz, and people were you know saying they were so proud of me and sort of and, th- and that sort of thing, and then I also was a um, guest on um, Say Yes to the Dress Atlanta <laughs> because I uh, so I actually got engaged while I was at Shepherd Center. No kidding. Um, and so that was part of the the cover story thing, um, and it was like, literally the cover said from trauma to triumph. So like, how do you? turn back from there sure. <laughs> you know you're sort of set on that path right. um i've got to triumph now yeah. <laughs> yeah so there was sort of no going back um i was on the episode of say yes to the dress and it got a lot of positive a lot of positive feedback and and response from that those sort of things you know people would recognize me when i was out in the community say oh i saw you on say yes to the dress and um it was sort of spark conversation so it really just almost 
chose me, so to speak. I'm, I mean, I'm glad that it has. And then, you know, coming to Porter Novelli, um, which has actually, it, it feels very serendipitous, actually, you know, signed on to that valuable 500 mm-hmm. um, organization um, about disability and inclusion. And that just really sounded like something that would be perfect for me. Um, and I felt like I have a lot to say around it and a lot of experience under my belt now. It just really felt natural for me. So it's almost just a culmination of several small events that have that have gotten me where I am today and that I feel comfortable uh, sort of being a, a voice when possible and, and advocating in that way. It wasn't always like that. I, you know, I used to have a pretty grim outlook on how my life was going to turn out that you know, that was not all roses. And so it definitely has, has been a learning curve and a one foot in front of one foot in front of the other, mm-hmm. uh, to be ironic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it sounds like it simply fell into place. Yeah, it really did. It was, it was sort of this, this path that very much feels, you know, meant to be, you know, to, at the risk of sounding cheesy, mm. but it, you know, I, I do think there's, a greater purpose for why I've sort of endured all this. And even if there isn't a greater purpose, I feel like I'm on my way to making it a greater purpose. It sounds like you've already done that. To yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've tried. I've definitely tried. Um, and like it's definitely come a little at a time. So it was just all very natural. I didn't wake up one day and say, today is the day I'm going to speak up. It was just something that sort of happened. Yep. Very cool. What are two things that you wish people would do to become better informed or to be better allies to the disability community? Read up on the ADA. If you are a business owner, an employer, um, know what at minimum your obligations are. Um, because as a person with a disability, we already have enough to think about day in and day out, just managing our own daily personal lives. And it's it's a lot to also have to consider things that employers and business owners should be doing anyway to make things as, you know, as equal as possible for you without having to chase somebody down and ask them why there's not a ramp to get into somewhere or why you have to take the ramp for the dumpster to get into their restaurant. Cause that's happened to me before. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, just read up on the ADA, know what your obligations are under the law at a minimum. Beyond that is is great, but at, at least at least do that. And actually involving people who are members of the disability community in conversations about what you can do. I know with this sort of broad stroke of diversity and inclusion, kind of how we were talking about with the diverse-ish nature of some DNI policies um, and initiatives, people with disabilities need to be included in the conversation and help shape the diversity and inclusion conversation and policies at that organization. Having the representation there who lives it day in and day out to actually help form what decisions are going to be made would definitely be the two things that I would say would be most helpful. Well, thank you so much for, for talking to, to us today, Lauren. This has been really um, 
interesting and helpful to me as as someone who wants to to open the lines of communication more and help people who want to be allies allies to be better allies and uh, I hope maybe we can we can do this again sometime. Yeah, absolutely. I would um, be happy to come back. Thanks for having me. And uh, to our listeners, thanks for joining us. We'll see you uh, in a couple weeks with another episode of the Inclusion Catalyst. Thanks very much. And that's it for this episode of Inclusion Catalyst. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. 